Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 181, Jesus is Heaven on Earth. And on the podcast today, I want to continue our little mini-series on heaven. And as the title implies, I want us to spend the majority of our time looking at the person of Jesus and what the New Testament actually teaches us about the reality of Jesus being heaven on earth even if that's a reality that you have never seen. I find that in the years that I've spent doing a podcast and the years that I've spent being a pastor, there are a lot of realities embedded in the Gospels that many Christians just miss when they're reading. They're looking for personal application. They're looking for doctrinal clarity. And they miss the way that the biblical writers are actually telling the gospel story. And so I want to point out a few of those to you. Um, Next week, I'll have an episode in its entirety looking at just one of those passages, which we won't look at in this episode. But I want to show you the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how the way the gospel writers talk about Jesus and portray his life to us they are communicating Jesus is heaven on earth. So I don't think I'll have to do a lot of convincing. I hope that the passages themselves will do that, but I'm excited for this episode. I think it will be clarifying for you and I'm eager to get into it. So let's just dive in. We looked on the podcast last week at the idea that the point of redemption is the reunification of both heaven and the earth, or in the way it is spoken about in Hebrew, the heavens and the earth. And if you remember from last episode, we started in the Garden of Eden, and then we looked toward the end of the Bible. I actually got several good interactions this week, some um, through email, some on Facebook, And just so that um, I'm not misunderstood as I'm teaching, and this is why I love the feedback that I get, because I want to make sure I'm as clear as I intend to be, I am not denying that there are separate realities being portrayed in the scriptures, that God's space or the heavens is in um, some respects a distinct uh, place or location, if you will, locus of, of, you know, central operation from the earth. And we have some instances in the Bible where those two places overlap and those two places connect. What, what I'm trying to explain in this series is the reality that the heavens and the earth in an attempt to one day be united does in fact involve us and where we will go, where we will be, which of those two locations trumps the other, if you will, and what does the Bible actually teach about what happens to people at the end of all things? Where will we be? What will it be like, etc.? And so that's really the reason why I'm bringing this up today. And so for the listeners who have engaged me 
I do plan to address many of the questions or the concerns or the comments that you've made as we go along. And I'm very thankful for those comments because what they do for me is they help me decide, am I being clear with what I think? Um, Are there components of things that I already believe that shape the way I approach another topic. But if I don't explain those to you, then you have no idea how I'm approaching them. So feedback like this is awesome. And I'm really thankful for those of you who take the time to do that. It really means a lot to me and it's helpful. I hope not only for you and for me, but also for the rest of the listeners, even those who who don't reach out. And so um, anyway, it's an open invitation. Anybody can contact me with any questions or thoughts that you have, but I'm, I'm really thankful for that and just wanted to point that out before we dive in. So again, we looked at the unification of heaven and earth. That is the point. That is the goal for all things. And so what I want to do today is again, kind of start at the beginning and just look at the way we think about these things. Um, If you've followed along in the podcast, you know that we began several months way back in 2018. So some of the first, you know, 15 episodes or or whatever um, in the Garden of Eden, we started in the beginning because I think if we get the beginning correct, it will at least shape the way we think the rest of the story is going to unfold. And in the Garden of Eden, and I alluded to this last week, and I'll allude to this till the day I die because I think it's important, but the the Garden of Eden itself was, in a sense, the first temple. It was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. And we looked last week at God's space, um, you know, intersecting with man's space when the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And so those are important to realize Um, I did three episodes in the beginning of this podcast, Um, episode number 10, which I simply called a garden in Eden. We looked at this garden and the implications of what it meant. Episode 11, I titled Work It and Keep It, which are two verbs in chapter 2, verse 15 of, of Genesis that are given to the man and the woman in the garden and what they were supposed to do. And interestingly enough, those two verbs, work and keep, are are used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the work of the priests in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And priestly language is used repeatedly throughout Genesis 1 and 2 as it relates to what man is supposed to do in this garden. And I go into some detail explaining that, particularly in episode 12, which I titled Eden's Garden Temple. And the reason why I bring this up is because it's important we let the Bible tell its own story. And in the story the Bible is telling, temple imagery and temple language, priestly imagery and priestly language, cosmic imagery and cosmic language are important for the way the Bible tells the story. And they're important for the way you and I understand what we're supposed to be as as human beings made in the image of God. And so if you've never listened to those three episodes, I don't think they're super long, maybe 35, 40 minutes, something like that. Um, I would encourage you to do that because it will help you think about what we're talking about now. And, um, and so anyway, I just kind of leave that for you, but the, we have the first temple in the garden. 
Later on in the Old Testament, we have a tabernacle that the Lord instructs his people to, uh, to build in the wilderness. Now we have a portable place where heaven and earth overlap. This is the first instance of this. Actually, the very first instance of this is, is when, when Jacob has a, has a dream in Genesis 28, which we're going to look at in just a second. Um, and he sees a ladder uh, coming down and angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder. And he recognizes that this place where heaven and earth are meeting is a very special location. And he says, ah, you know, this is the house of God. This is, this is a special location here. Well, special locations pop up repeatedly in the biblical story, and one of them was in the tabernacle. The Lord instructed his people to build this tent that could be moved, but the Lord would be with his people, and that's where worship of him could take place. And so again, you can think of the tabernacle as a portable place where heaven and earth overlap. We then get, as the story continues, once David drives out many of his enemies and he brings rest to the land. The Lord says, hey, David, you've shed a lot of blood, but your son Solomon is going to be able to build for me this temple that you wanted to build. And the temple in Jerusalem then becomes a more permanent place where heaven and earth overlap. So this is the location temples, as I share in the several episodes at the beginning of the podcast, the ones I just referenced, episodes 10, 11, and 12, there is the idea that the God who conquers a particular region will set up an, an image of himself in this temple and the people will come and will be able to worship him there. But temples were oftentimes built on the tops of really high mountains because in the ancient mind, the mountain tops were the closest spaces physically to the heavens, right? I mean, when you're, when you're up on top of a mountain, you feel like you're as close to the skies as you can be. And if, if you're not as close to the skies as you can be, you're a whole lot closer to the skies than when you're down at the bottom of the mountain, right? Um, and I think that that's just a helpful way to think about it. And so what we have is we, 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 have, um, we have this idea of the temple being the place where it's a little bit more permanent location where heaven and earth overlap. Well, then Solomon's uh, praise, a prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8 and he actually highlights this connection for us. Um, he says in 1 Kings eight twenty seven, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive." Now, there's a lot going on in this first um, section of Solomon's prayer, and I'm going to read a, a little bit more of his prayer in just a second, but a few things I want to point out. The first is that Solomon recognizes that is God going to indeed dwell on the earth? And that's an interesting question, right? Is he dwelling here? Can God really live here? Behold, heaven or the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you. 
how much less this house that I've built. Like Solomon realizes this is odd. You know, I mean, heaven and earth, God's presence coming down. Heaven can't even contain you. How can earth do it? And he says, but you've said that this place that we build, your name will be here. And so when you hear us pray and in heaven where you dwell, when you hear our prayers, forgive us. Solomon goes on, and I'm going to read several passages for you of what he talks about with this. When God hears in heaven, his dwelling place, he then forgives the sins of his people. So he says, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, right, in this temple, then here in heaven... And forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. Verse 35. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place, this temple, and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people, Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Verse 37, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive. Verse 41, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Verse 46, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all of their heart and with all of their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, that's a lot. I know I, I read quite a bit there. I would encourage you to read it and to mark all these references. I've bolded them in my own notes, but here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive. Here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive. Here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive. And notice that it says your name shall be there. So the Lord's name is here. Heaven is here where the Lord dwells. 
But the Lord also dwells in the Holy of Holies in this temple where when the people come in, they pray and the Lord is listening to their prayers as they're directed to this place where his name is there, where his presence dwells, and they are requesting forgiveness. Over and over and over and over in Solomon's prayer, where the temple is and where the presence of God is, is where they can receive forgiveness of sins. Now, he says, here in heaven, you're dwelling, right? And can God dwell on the earth? Like, these are the questions being asked. And it's this word dwell that I kind of want to focus in on. Because in John chapter 1, John does something really interesting. John says in John, in John 1, 14, well, you know the beginning of John. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 14, John tells us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the idea of the Word becoming flesh, the Word being God in the beginning, but also the Word being God and then dwelling among us is this idea in the temple, the place where the Lord dwelled, but the Lord who dwells in the heavens is now dwelling among us. Which means, in a very real sense, that the heavens have come to the earth. And this idea of Jesus dwelling among us, the word itself is the same word used in the Old Testament for tabernacle. So Jesus, I mean, this isn't good grammar, right? Because we don't think of the word tabernacle as a verb. But if we were to pretend it was a verb, we might say something like, Jesus tabernacled among us. Jesus comes, again, in the portable sense. So tabernacle isn't any less significant than temple. Temple was just the place where they had a more permanent location because they had um, taken that land and God had given them Jerusalem. And so they had a place where they were living. Now they weren't nomads wandering through the wilderness. But that also meant that the temple didn't ever move. And so Jesus, of course, being human, moves all over the place. And as such, he's more like a tabernacle. But the idea is the same. It's the place where heaven and earth overlap. And since Jesus is now the one who dwells among us, Jesus is the place where heaven and earth overlap. And I think that's what the significance of this is. So again, Solomon tells us that the name of the Lord shall be in the temple. The Lord dwells in the heavens, even though they cannot contain him. But now we're told that the word, which was God, is now dwelling among us. And of course, you know, as you read the gospels, that Jesus does the forgiveness of sins like nobody else, right? So people come to Jesus to receive forgiveness of sins. They're no longer going to this temple or praying toward a building in order to receive forgiveness. And God is not in heaven hearing them. God is on the earth hearing them and is simply declaring your sins are forgiven. Now, when he does that, he gets a lot of pushback from the religious leaders, as you well know, right? Why? Because they know that forgiveness is something that only God can grant, and that is typically a religious act that takes place in this religious space, 
known as the temple. But Jesus is here walking around on the earth, forgiving people of their sins, which is why I took the time to read for you 1 Kings chapter 8, because it's filled with so many requests for forgiveness for so many different reasons. And so when Jesus comes as the one who dwells among us like a tabernacle, notice also that in the temple, in Solomon's prayer, he repeatedly says that the name of the Lord shall be there. The Lord has decided to put his name there, right? And the name brings with it the authority, the power, the character of our God as it rests on the temple. Well, now the name of the Lord is in Jesus. And I don't know if you know this, but the name Jesus, the word Jesus, the the the, the, the male name Jesus literally means the Lord is my salvation, right? So Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua, right? Which also means the Lord is my salvation. So that's what the name means. And so now you have a person, Jesus, who comes bringing the forgiveness of sins because he is dwelling among us the way that Solomon requested the Lord would do in this temple. But Jesus is doing it here on the earth and is literally by name definition, the Lord is my salvation. That's what it means for Jesus to bear the name Jesus. And it says now, or, or I, I'm going to suggest now that Jesus is now the means through which God hears in the heavens and forgives the sins of those who ask. Now, I shared with you earlier that there was another instance. It's one that predates even the tabernacle, and it's this interesting story in Genesis 28. Let me read it to you here for verses 10 to 17. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heavens. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring." Your offspring, excuse me, shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. He then called the name of that place Bethel or Bethel, which just means the house of God. Now, I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but I, I had underlined these in my own notes, but how many times were just told that he came to a certain place he lay down in that place. He took the stones of that place. 
Surely the Lord is in this place. He named this place Bethel. How awesome is this place? Like place, 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 place. We've got all these identifiers and not until the very end of the narrative do we even find out that this is now the city, you know, Bethel, which becomes a a famous city in Israel. But the point, I think, of this narrative is recognizing that there is a place here. There is a place on the earth where somehow, and it's, it's, it's a vision. He has a dream. He doesn't, this doesn't actually happen per se. J- Jacob just sees this image. He sees this ladder, but he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on it. So I, I had shared last week in the podcast how when the Tower of Babel was constructed, what you see is you see men attempting to ascend and descend on this ladder that we've created. It's a, it's a direction of those on the earth attempting to ascend to the heavens. Here in Jacob, Jacob's ladder vision, we have the opposite. We have the angels of God who reside with God in the heavens ascending and descending on the ladder. In other words, this location on the earth to Jacob is significant now because this place is where the presence of God and the blessings that come from his messengers in the heavens, i.e. the angels, are ascending down or ascending up and then descending down to the earth at this place, right? So this is a special place. He names it Bethel, the house of God, the gate of the heavens. So in other words, to Jacob, this means this is the place by which a person could then enter into the heavens, right? This is like a, a portal. You know, I don't know. That's a an idea that I, that I have from my love of, of superhero movies. But it is this place that is unique and that is special. Well, it's fascinating because if John hasn't introduced us to enough really neat things by telling us that, you know, Jesus is now the tabernacle of God who dwells among us. Um, Later on in John chapter one, verse 43 to 51, we read this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you and when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, this is really interesting to me because Jesus here, as you can tell, since we just read it, um, we're talking about a place where angels of God ascend and descend. We were pretty clear in Jacob's vision that this happened with a ladder that's top reached into the heavens, but that its bottom landed at a place called Bethel 
And now Jesus is saying that not on a ladder will you see angels of God ascending and descending, but rather on him. And so this is interesting. Jesus is now claiming to be this place. What did John, what did um, Jacob say about it? He said, this is the house of God. This, right? This is, and that the temple was oftentimes referred to as the house of God. And Jesus is here saying, well, that's me. And so Jesus is not only the house of God, but when Jacob also declared in his dream, this is the gate of heaven. This is the portal, if you will, that connects the heavens to the earth. Jesus is also saying, that's me as well. And so Jesus is the ladder and Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. Not Bethel, Jesus now, in John chapter 2, we get a showdown, and this is interesting, but we get a showdown between Jesus, the place where heaven and earth meet, and the religious leaders in the temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. Okay, so picture this, right? Which one, Jesus or the temple, most accurately represents reality when the heavens meet the earth? Notice, if you would, in that scene, if you remember the scene, Jesus turning, you know, driving out the money changers and, um, you know, getting upset with people there. The religious leaders then question Jesus regarding his actions. And Jesus says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Literally calling himself the temple while he's standing in the temple. Okay, th this is stunning, right? And, and I hope you get this when you realize what Jesus is doing. We, we kind of blow past this because to us, temple language doesn't maybe mean as much as it might have in, in the first century when Jesus is saying this. But we now have a place where if Jesus dwells among us, Jesus is the house of God. Jesus is the gate of heaven. Jesus is bringing the blessings of the heavens to the earth. Jesus is the one who forgives sins when people pray to the Lord. Then now there's inevitably going to be a conflict between Jesus claiming to be all of these special things and the fact that a building called the temple physically exists at the time when Jesus is walking around on the earth. And so where does Jesus choose to have a showdown and declare for the first time, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up? Well, we know he's talking about himself, but he does it in the temple. And of course, he creates all kinds of confusion, right? The religious leaders totally misunderstand him. They say something about how long it's taken to build their temple and how would Jesus do it in three days. But then thankfully, John, just to make sure there's no confusion for the rest of us, goes out of his way to say, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, this isn't, as some people would claim, just an illustration that Jesus is using, right? As if he's just saying, hey, in the way that the temple served as the place of worship, people will also be able to worship through me. No, Jesus is completely replacing the temple as the place where man meets with God, where the heavens and the earth meet, where God comes to be with his people. The temple in Jerusalem, that special place that for Israel meant everything, yeah, that place is no longer special. 
it has been replaced by the person of Jesus. And it is very important to get this clear in our minds. Time and time and time again, Jesus does this in the gospel of John, or at least John writes about it for us in his gospel so that we can make sure we get this clear. The religious leaders are constantly talking about significant people or significant places in the Old Testament and referring to those realities as special or as ultimate. And Jesus is constantly saying, guys, the real significance of all that, the point of all that, yeah, that's me. I'm the temple. I'm the bread. I'm the new Moses. I'm the ladder. I'm the well. I'm the feast. I'm the living water. I'm the new wine. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the true vine. I'm the I am. You see, the gospel of John takes every significant person and place from the Old Testament and shows how Jesus fulfills them all. Tabernacle, Jacob's ladder, the temple, Jacob's well, Moses, the manna from heaven, the feast of tabernacles, the whole nation of Israel, God himself, all of it. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. So when Jesus announces the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he is saying is that God's kingdom, God's economy, the way things work in God's space, the realities of heaven have come down to the earth in him. So what this means is wherever Jesus is, the kingdom of heaven is. Whatever Jesus does it's an expression of life in God's kingdom. Whatever Jesus says, he's expressing reality as it exists in the kingdom of heaven. And he's inviting everyone to be a part of that reality. He is inviting them in to God's kingdom. And so every time someone welcomes Jesus, his teachings or his actions, they are welcoming the kingdom of heaven. And every time someone rejects Jesus, his teachings or his actions, they are rejecting the kingdom of heaven. As we've already said, Jesus is the place where we can receive forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness is the kingdom of heaven in actuality. Jesus with eating with tax collectors and sinners is the kingdom of heaven in actuality where all are welcome, regardless of their status or worth in the eyes of men. Jesus healing people of their diseases is the kingdom of heaven in actuality. Jesus forbidding us from judging other people is the kingdom of heaven in actuality, where all are created equal and all are valued as equals. Jesus teaching about who is blessed is the kingdom of heaven in actuality. Jesus' teaching about who is cursed is the kingdom of heaven in actuality. Jesus' parables are illustrations of the kingdom of heaven in actuality. Jesus casting out demons is the kingdom of heaven in actuality, where the presence of evil no longer has dominion over people's lives. 
Jesus rebuking Peter for using his sword is the kingdom of heaven in actuality, where true peace can never and will never come through violence. Jesus is the point of everything. Who he is and what he does is central to bringing the presence of heaven to the earth. And Jesus's presence quite literally is heaven on earth. So wherever Jesus goes, he's taking little pockets of heaven with him, driving away sin, darkness, and evil, and bringing hope, healing, forgiveness, and blessings in its place. Jesus is the center of everything, not heaven. Jesus coming to us, not us going to heaven, is the heartbeat of the good news. Heaven is not the point. And it saddens me to even have to say this, but I don't know that I have any choice. As followers of Jesus, we are called to a Jesus-centric worldview, not a heaven-centric one. In other words, the focus of our attention, our hope as Christians, is not going to heaven. It's Jesus. And next week on the podcast, we're going to look at a passage that many Christians simply assume is about heaven and about going to heaven, but a closer look reveals something far richer. But we will save that for next week. And so I'm thankful that you are tuning in. I hope this little tiny flyby was helpful for you, but Jesus is the one who brings the blessings of heaven to the earth. Jesus is the one who brings God's kingdom. Jesus is the one who is the place where we can receive forgiveness. Jesus is the one who brings the presence of God to the earth. And so having a showdown with the religious leaders in the temple is the perfect place to do it because Jesus is upending the way everyone thought God interacted with the world. And in fact, Jesus is still upending the way everyone thought God interacted with the world. And I hope you, as one of his followers or as someone who's intrigued and listening from the outside, as you come to know the person of Jesus, that you personally will come to experience the blessings of the heavens. I had a, someone come to me who was very close and say, I'm not really sure what I think about the Christian faith. I'm not really sure what I think about God and his dealings on the earth. What should I do? And I said, I'll tell you what, pick up your Bible and read through the gospels. If you like the person of Jesus and you like the things that he's about, then make a decision to follow him. If you look at the things that Jesus does and do not care for his actions, then don't. That's really the choice that everyone's faced with. We're being invited to follow a person who says he's come to bring the blessings of the heavens to the earth. Now, if the lives that we are living are very comfortable with the realities as they exist on the earth, then we may be offended or bothered, or upset over what Jesus is going to expose in those earthly realities as being unfitting for life in the heavens. 
But if the experiences and the realities that you have because of the way life works on the earth are upsetting to you, then listening to the way Jesus describes life in the kingdom will sound really, really appealing. And if it does, give him your life and choose to follow him. What you are doing in that moment is not getting saved, quote unquote. You are choosing to follow the one who claims to be the bringer of real life. And by choosing to follow him, you will then be on the receiving end of the blessings that can only come from the presence of God, from the heavens. But as Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He literally came bringing the blessings of the heavens to the earth and has called his followers to live those blessings out in the way they interact with themselves, with others, and with him. So that's all the time we have this week for the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I, again, appreciate the feedback that I've gotten this week. It looks as if we might have several new listeners who've picked up on this particular mini-series, which is good news So if you've shared this with a friend, thank you for doing that. It's always neat to see the podcast continue to grow and to challenge and strengthen more people. So that's all the time we have for this week. Talk to you next time. Have a great week.